we're going to veer off of our series on 2 Corinthians, but we're still going to, uh, to be looking at Paul's admonitions to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18, and uh, reading down through verse 31. Remember the cross. Paul writes, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that at the cross, your love and your justice perfectly intersected. And we know what the Bible tells us was taking place there, that the just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Lord, we are grateful that the scripture also tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not about us waiting until we might be worthy enough one day. That day will never come. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, what a statement of your grace that is because in Romans 8, 31, we read that the very one who could have condemned us, that is the Lord Jesus, instead died for us on the cross. What a reminder that the cross is, that salvation is totally of the Lord. 
It's not by keeping the law or any good deeds. But it is of you. And God, I pray that if there's even one here today who has not experienced the new birth, that through the preaching of your word, you might be pleased to open their eyes, their heart, and their mind, that they would look to Jesus and Jesus alone, and so be saved. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. During the winter of 1835-1836, the people of Texas decided to sever relations with Mexico because they were dissatisfied with the Mexican government. Now, to prevent this split, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the Mexican general, approached the vicinity of San Antonio in late February 1836 with an army of about 5,000 men. San Antonio, on the other hand, only had a fighting force of about 150 men, And they were under the direction of Colonel Travis. The company included men like James Bowie and Davy Crockett. Well, the Mexican army took the Texans by surprise. And the siege of the Alamo began on February 23rd, 1836. By March the 5th, their ammunition was low. And so the Mexican forces scaled the walls and they killed everybody. Now, a short span of time elapsed, and then General Sam Houston gathered more forces in order to save the independence movement. The Mexican forces pursued Houston and his troops. At San Jacinto, Texas, General Houston turned his troops around and surprised the Mexican army while they were enjoying a siesta. The battle cry was, remember the Alamo. And the following day, the Mexican general was forced to sign a treaty granting Texas their independence. Remember the Alamo. Now folks, oftentimes people look back to a special defining moment in history and that moment provides us with some needed inspiration. Well, in the church, we are to look back and always remember the cross. We are never to forget what God accomplished for us there. And that was Paul's admonition to the Corinthians. You'll remember from what we've been studying recently that the church at Corinth had many, many problems. They were a defiled church. They were defiled because they were living with sexual immorality in their midst and they knew about it and instead of dealing with that, Paul said, instead you're even proud about it. They were also carrying one another to court and suing one another and so they were a defiled church. 
Not only were they a defiled church, but they were a divided church. As Paul states in chapter 1, they had all these different little cliques going. Some were saying, I'm of the Apostle Paul's group. Others were saying, I'm of Simon Peter's group. Others were saying, I'm of the group that follows Apollos. And still others were saying, I am of the group that follows Jesus. And Paul writes to them, what was, did the apostle Paul die for you? Have I ever done anything for you? It's, it's Christ that we are to follow. And so they were a divided church. They were defiled, they were divided, and so they became a disgraced fellowship. And he tells them that they were doing more really to hinder the preaching of the gospel than to further the preaching of the gospel. Now folks, to a church like that, what was Paul's challenge? Paul wanted one thing to drive their fellowship. He said, remember the cross. Now the cross reminds us of several things. First of all, it reminds us of the awfulness of sin and that there is no other hope for mankind. If there could have been some other way for the redemption of mankind, surely God would have purchased our salvation some other way. But there was no other way. It reminds us also of the wrath of God against sin and furthermore it reminds us that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ for new passions and purposes. Now we learn this morning that the cross is at the heart of Christianity. Some today want to take references to the blood being shed out of their hymn books for example. But what we learn today is that a Christianity without the cross isn't really a Christianity at all. Now with that said, we need to keep several things in mind. And the first thing I want you to see with me this morning, uh, admonitions that Paul gives that ought to grow out of that fact. He says in verse 17 that we are to preach the cross. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is wanting them to take a good look at themselves. They need to follow his example. Now if we were to go back to verse 2 of chapter 1, see what he's already said about them, you would see there that he addressed them as saints who are a sanctified people. Early on, he's reminding them of this. And he's reminding them of the fact that they are certainly not living like the people that God has called them to be. And so they need to become practically what they already are positionally. He also begins his letter by stating that he knows that they have been enriched in everything by Christ in all utterance and knowledge. And that certainly is a foretaste of the discussion he's going to have with them about spiritual gifts. He knows that they are gifted people as all believers are. 
Well, he also states that Jesus Christ will confirm his children to the end. We will stand before God blameless one day. Now, what a remarkable statement that is. Because we are anything but blameless for the moment. But Paul is reminding them and us of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice that on the day when we stand before Christ, we will be blameless in the sense that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now after an introduction like that, he reminds them of what they are to be about. Just like Paul, they are to have the mission of being about the preaching of the cross. That's what is to drive them in their fellowship. They are to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. You see, again, by being so divided and disgraced and defiled, they are making life all about themselves. And Paul wants them to get their eyes off of themselves, and he wants them living for Christ and Christ alone, and he wants them preaching Jesus. You know, the church was born out of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that the heart of the gospel is not love your neighbor as yourself or love even your enemies as yourself. Some people want to try to convince us that that is the heart of Christianity. Well, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemy as yourself is very important to Christianity, but it is the Christian ethic that grows out of the gospel. It does not stand in place of the gospel, but it grows out of the gospel. Likewise, going around the world and doing kind, benevolent deeds for people is not the heart of the gospel. It's important. Again, it's the Christian ethic that grows out of the gospel, but it doesn't replace the gospel. Jesus Christ came and was a a great teacher. I mean, after all, he was the very son of God. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that people were awed by his teaching because he taught them not as the scribes and Pharisees, but as one having authority. But folks, as important as the teaching of Christ was, even the teaching of Christ or the miracles of Christ were not the heart of the gospel itself. What Christ told his disciples he was about to do, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem I'm going to be rejected by men. I'm going to be crucified. I will be buried, but on the third day I will rise again. That is the heart of the gospel. And that's the message of the cross. And that is the message that we are to keep central. And you don't have to be slick about it. There in verse 17, Paul went on to say to the Corinthians, I didn't come to you with eloquent words preaching the cross. I just came to you in the simplicity of the gospel. Now most scholars say probably the context of that is Athens. Paul had been at Athens right before leaving Athens and going to Corinth. And we know according to Acts chapter 17 what Paul did there at Athens. Paul went to the marketplace and the Athenians used to love to debate certain issues. 
They had great philosophers and debaters and Paul met with them in the marketplace and he debated with them before he preached the gospel to them. Well, most scholars believe when he left Athens, went to Corinth, he decided that he was not going to follow that approach again. And so he said to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ crucified. And he reminds them in verse 17 that he just came with the simple message of the cross. And the point is, ladies and gentlemen, you and I don't have to dress up the gospel. We don't have to help out the gospel. The gospel alone is sufficient for salvation. We, we are not to try to add any type of, of fancy trappings to it. It is sufficient all by itself. And so Paul's admonition to them was we are to preach the cross. Now second thing that grows out of this. He explains in verse 18 that the cross is the power of God. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now those scoffers who stood at the foot of the cross and said he saved others, let him save himself, did not understand what was taking place. They saw the cross as weakness. They interpreted it as defeat. Pilate didn't like it that Jesus wouldn't answer him. The Jewish leaders mocked when Christ stood before them silent. The crowd thought he was a hoax because he would not come down off of the cross. They said he saved others, let him save himself. And so all of the above interpreted the cross as weakness. But actually the cross was not weakness at all. In fact, the cross was a display of the power of God at work. Because you see there on the cross, Jesus was giving his life as the Lamb of God. You'll recall what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 3.25. In Romans 3.25, he said that God has put forth his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word that simply means that Christ there on the cross died in our place and he took all of the wrath of God against sin that we might experience the mercy of God and the righteousness of God instead. He died in our place and as he died in our place and he breathed his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It was a single sacrifice That was completely sufficient. None other was needed. The debt had been paid. And so the cross displayed power, the power of God to forgive sin. Now, to some today who are trying to make it by other means, by their own way, the cross still looks like defeat. People think they have to try to add something to it. 
But Paul actually warned the Galatians, if you try to add anything to it, you actually nullify the grace of God. You nullify, nullify what was happening there. Paul says here again in verse 18, For the word of Christ, uh, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We must remember the cross and preach the cross, for just as Romans 1.16 says, it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That great reformer Martin Luther said on one occasion he had a dream. And in that dream Satan appeared to him and Satan said, Luther, do you actually think that God is going to forgive you? Look at all your sins. Look at everything you've done wrong. Look at all your guilt. Do you actually think God will forgive you of all that? Luther said, I told Satan, while you're remembering all of my sin and all of my guilt, you are forgetting that Christ died in my place and the cross is sufficient. He takes away all of my sin. And so while you've certainly remembered my side of the equation, you've forgotten Christ's side of the equation, which is far greater. Let me try to explain how the cross is the power of God. I want, I want to see if I can explain it a little better using, using Scripture itself. So I want you to turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and beginning in verse 1. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, for since the law has but a shadow... Of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having uh, once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The writer of Hebrews is talking here about the incompleteness of the Old Testament sacrifices. The incompleteness of them. 
You see, a sacrifice had to be offered for sin. In order for mankind to be reconciled with God, this issue of sin had to be addressed because this is man's primary problem. And so no matter what kind of religion a man has, if his religion can't take away sin, it is of absolutely no value whatsoever. And so under the old covenant, God instituted a way for sin to be dealt with and covered until the perfect sacrifice could be made. And what we need to see here from Hebrews 10 is that under the old covenant system, sin was covered, but while it was covered, it was not taken away. And so under the old covenant, the priests were busy all day long from dawn to sunset slaughtering and sacrificing animals. But no matter how many sacrifices were made or how often, they were in the final analysis ineffective. Now this is not to say they were bad. Because as Paul writes elsewhere, again in the book of Romans, he says that the law is good and perfect and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law in and of itself, but the sacrifices were incomplete. They were only a shadow of what was to come. Christ was the reality to which they pointed. And also, while they were incomplete, they also had to be offered continually. Now that too should have been a testimony of how incomplete they were. Because had they been complete, they wouldn't have had to be offered over and over and over again. There would have been no need. And so the very, uh, the very fact that the priest had to continually uh, go before God and the high priest on the day of atonement had to go into the Holy of Holies every year, that was a testimony. Their continuance that all of them were incomplete. Now that brings up the question, why did God do things this way? Why did he give the old covenant with shadows? Well, for one thing, it was to make his people expectant. They would wait until that perfect sacrifice. Galatians 4.4 4 says it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son. Not only to make his people expectant, but it was also to remind them of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. Sin was so serious that it took the shedding of blood. Something had to die in order to cover their sin. Well, they could not make perfect those who drew near. Those Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do that. They only covered, year after year they covered, so that the people were spared from the judgment of God. Their sins were covered but not removed. Folks, a perfect illustration of what was going on with that. Let me, let me try to explain it this way with an analogy. 
Let's say you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that in your body you're walking around with a terminal disease. And you're going to die. But he says, I've got good news for you. That good news is that while your disease is terminal and it will eventually take your life, there is some medicine that I can give you. You can go to the drugstore, get this medicine, this prescription uh, filled, and by taking this medicine every day, you will be elongating your life. You will be holding back the advancement of that disease. Folks, we've got a terminal disease, a spiritual disease, sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And all of those sacrifices were like medicine that you would take. The disease would be temporarily covered without taking it away until Christ came to give the perfect sacrifice on the cross that could once and for all deal with sin. And so the cross is not weakness. Contrary to weakness, the cross displays the power of God. Well, the third thing I want you to see here is that human wisdom cannot save. Look back at verse uh, 20 of 1 Corinthians 1. In verse 20, Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's like Paul is inviting three different classes of men to bear witness. There's the wise man, uh, the expert, there's the scribe, the interpreter of the law, and there's the disputer, the philosopher, and the debater. Paul essentially says, where are you? Stand up and tell us. Through all of your studies and all of your efforts, have you found the way? Have you found the way to be at peace with God? Have you found the way through human wisdom to be reconciled to God? And the collective answer that they would all have to give would be a resounding no. Verse 21 makes it clear that man will never find his own way. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Folks, there are those all around us who are still trying to make it their own way. And all of their attempts are completely in vain. Because human wisdom and human effort simply cannot make us right with God. And for that reason we must remember the cross and preach the cross and get that message out there and not hide it away because he says in verse 21, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The cross, though it seems foolish to some, is instead the wisdom and the power and the majesty of God. 
What some see as God's foolishness is greater than man's wisdom. If it were even possible for God to ever have a foolish thought. If God could entertain or have a foolish thought, which we know he can, but if he could, his foolish thought would still be greater than our greatest wisdom. Human wisdom cannot say. Fourthly, the cross nullifies all boasting in in man's ability. Look at verses 30 and 31. In verses 30 and 31, he says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Everything that God is about is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. Everything that man is looking for can be found in Jesus Christ. Man's looking for forgiveness and peace with God. And reconciliation with God. He's looking for meaning and purpose. And all of that is found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? As he he talks about here in verses 26 and following. he, He makes the argument where then is boasting? Boasting is nullified. We can't boast in anything we've done. He says, consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you wise, not many of you noble were chosen, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to save those who believe. Why has God done things this way? Because if God chose the wisdom and the power of man, what would we do? We would stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we would say, God, look at me. If you are a person of position or a person of wealth or a person of power or a person of nobility or you had accomplished great feats in your life, you would stand before God and say, God, look at me. You ought to be happy to have somebody like me on your team. But he's chosen even the weak things of the world to confound the wise. So that all of the pride of men is completely cast aside. That we have nothing in and of ourselves to boast about. The only thing that we can boast about is what God in Christ has done for us. Because you see, the Scripture says that we are depraved, totally depraved. Uh, The Scripture says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in trespasses and sins. What can dead men do to affect their own salvation? They can't do anything. Salvation, if we're going to be saved, salvation has got to be of the Lord. And that's what God has done in Christ. 
While we were yet helpless, Paul says, while we were even enemies, while we were estranged from God, Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. Folks, there is nothing in my spiritual treasure chest, there is nothing in your spiritual treasure chest that we can open it up on the day of judgment, pull it out and say, God, look at me and look at what I have done. The only boasting that there can ever be is the boasting that we make in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done at Calvary's cross for us. That's grace. And so the cross nullifies all boasting in man's ability and it puts all the focus on Christ and it gives Christ all the glory. I want to ask you this morning, is your focus on Him, is your boasting in Him? Is he the one you're trusting in or are you trusting in something or someone else? I want you to listen to this quote by John R.W. Stott because it really says it all. John R.W. Stott writes, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Folks, that's what the cross was all about. Amen? And that's why as the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to remember the cross. Because only by means of the cross will you and I stand before God one day and be able to hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to ask you to stand this morning as we go into a time of invitation. I may be speaking to somebody here this morning that you've been religious all of your life. You've joined a church. You've been baptized. But maybe you have never been born again. You see, the Bible says the new birth is something that the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of our sin. And points us to Jesus Christ. He quickens our spirit. And he makes us a new creation in Christ. Now a new creation in Christ means that we have new passions. New desires. A whole new orientation to our life. That's what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Jesus said to a religious man by the name of Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, 
he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? Are you a new creation in Christ? If you have never had that experience, I want to invite you to come forward this morning. I want to pray with you. Your prayer needs to be, God, save my soul. Regenerate my soul. I want to be born again. God plants that desire in your heart and God can do that in your life. You can't do that by your power and by religious deeds, but He can. If you've never been born again, come to Christ today. And if you've had that experience of the new birth, you see what your message is. Your message is to glory in Christ and the cross of Christ. That's the message that we're called upon to remember and never forget. So Christian, remember where your boasting is today. It's in nothing you have to offer. It's all about Jesus.